Nai. Africa Zora. Africa Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Burundi's ruling party criticizes the Roman Catholic Church and the Great Lakes women demand a more active role in peace talks. In economics, Dubai firm makes big natural gas finding in Tanzania. And in sports news, Nigeria Super Eagles ready to play Egypt in AFCON qualifier. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. 17 youth activists in Angola have been sentenced to prison terms of between two and eight years for planning a rebellion against President Jose Eduardo de Santos. Among them is prominent Angolan Repulowati Barao, who embarked on a 36-day hunger strike between September and October last year to protest his detention. He was sentenced to five and a half years in prison. The activists were arrested in June after discussing a book, Gene Sharp's 1993, From Dictatorship to Democracy, a conceptual framework for liberation about nonviolent resistance at the book club. The Sudanese government has signed an action plan with the United Nations to prevent the recruitment and use of children by its security forces. The action plan sets out a series of measures to enhance the overall protection of children affected by armed conflict. It includes the ending and prevention of child recruitment and the release of children from national forces. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has condemned a suicide bombing on a park in Pakistan. More than 70 people were killed in the attack and over 300 were wounded. The attack took place on Easter Sunday at the park in Lahore. Many women and children were among the dead. A group of formerly aligned with the Taliban has claimed responsibility. Ban has urged the Pakistani government to do its utmost to ensure the personal security of all individuals, including religious minority communities living in the country. New allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse by UN and non-UN forces have been confirmed in the Central African Republic. The UN mission in the country, MINUSCA, says it received new information of allegations in Kimo, which reportedly refers to incidents that occurred over the last two years. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. The mission said that its primary concern was to ensure that victims have been assisted and all reports immediately investigated to ensure that any perpetrators are appropriately sanctioned. The integrated team will gather all available information and preserve evidence to the extent possible. We expect more information from the mission in the next days. 
And finally, Libyan coast guards have intercepted three boats carrying 600 migrants trying to reach Europe by sea. The Tripoli government's navy says all the migrants were from Africa, which included 80 women, some who were pregnant. The navy has rejected a statement from the French defense minister that about 800,000 migrants were in Libya hoping to cross to Europe, saying the number is exaggerated. Well, that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa, Rise and Shine. Burundi's ruling party, CNDD, FDD, has called on the Roman Catholic Church for has accused the Roman Catholic Church of contributing to the destabilization of the country through its various statements. In a statement read by the spokesperson of that party on the eve of the Easter celebrations, Gelas Ndabirabe accused the leadership of the religious organization of deviating from their main mission of preaching the word of God and intruding in the country's politics. From Bujumbura, Bernard Bankukira reports. Citing reports from some civil society organizations, particularly the rally of associations of persons living with HIV AIDS, CAPES Plus, and opposition parties, Daniel Jelas Ndabirabe, spokesman of the CNDDFTD ruling party, has strongly accused the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church in Burundi of taking part in plots of destabilizing the country's institutions. Reading a statement released on Saturday on the eve of the Easter celebrations in the country, Mr. Ndabirabe openly accused some members of the biggest religious organization of having a hand in the various crises that have hit the country since independence till now. Some civil society and political parties of the democratic opposition criticize the declarations of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church that aim at the destabilization of the democratically elected institutions. Burikutje Vena Chepson of Capes Plus said that the Roman Catholic in Burundi has involved almost the crisis that have shaken Burundi from the advent of missionaries who are forerunners of European colonizers. Besides, the church has saved from afar or near in the universe that has ruined Burundi. For instance, in 72-73, many priests were killed while the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church were blessing and clapping. Some of the Catholic Church members in Burundi have contributed in the sad history in the country. Since the breakout of the current crisis, the Roman Catholic Church in Burundi has been releasing warning statements over uncertain situation prevailing in the country, particularly taking a standpoint against it and calling the leaders to sit with all political stakeholders so as to find a durable solution. The church in Burundi has been at loggerheads with the government after the Catholic bishops took a firm stand against the third-term bid of President Pierre Nkurunziza and the withdrawal of their priest in the 2015 electoral process, a process they considered less free and fair. For the CNDDFDD, that was an overt attack against the government and the ruling party.
Party, a behavior which, according to Daniel Gelas Ndabirabe, divided Christians politically and tarnished the image of the Roman Catholic among Burundians. The behavior of the Roman Catholic Church since 2010, specifically since April 26, 2015, is nothing but a reproduction of arbitrary gestures of some priest chiefs, prelates of the religion confession in the history of our country. More interestingly, an unprecedented activism has been noticed on behalf of religion confession being translated by the will to put an end to the election through sabotaging the National Independent Electoral Commission and the functioning of Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was accompanied by incendiary communication during the mass. Still people think that the Catholic Church ran the risk of losing the spiritual role towards Christians and intelligence in politics. The way to divide the Christians had been expressed either openly or covertly by some staff of the Catholic Church. And the concern to oppose the Christians to the different political parties' members have pushed many to wonder the reason behind the true mission of Burundian clergy hierarchy. It would be wise enough to stick to its priority, which is to preach the Holy Gospel and provide a spiritual assistance for the Christians. This reaction of the ruling party in Burundi comes in response to the recent statement of the Roman Catholic Church at the beginning of March 2016, whereby the Council of Catholic Bishops of Burundi denounced a deteriorating situation resulting from the collapse of a consensual democratic values based on a multi-party system. It accused the government of dismantling major opposition parties, intimidation and oppression against their members, a situation which created the instability preventing the country. Also, the Roman Catholic denounced the lack of dialogue between the protagonists in the conflict, causing persistent killings with mass graves of missing people being discovered in several parts of the country. For the ruling party, this is a proof that the leadership of the Roman Catholic in Burundi are taking a wrong hand and invest them to stick to their sole mission of preaching the word of God and leave politics to politicians. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. It's 8.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. Now women-led groups in the African Great Lakes region are demanding a more active and integral role in ongoing peace processes. This is according to Julian Lusenge from the Democratic Republic of Congo, who is a member of the Women's Platform for Peace, Security and Cooperation Framework, backed by the United Nations. As the head of a peace movement called Sofe Padi, Lusenge has braved death many times, fighting to stop violence against women in areas where armed groups operate. We meet to see and to evaluate how the platform of Addis Ababa Accord is uh, going. And um, we try to evaluate how women engage with this uh, platform 
and uh, how we can do best, everyone who is member of the board, to try to implicate women in each level to build peace in the Great Lake region and to promote women's rights, to do more with women, to meet the political leader in, in the Great Lakes. But uh, we saw that the platform gives some grant to women, but we need to do more to open the door so they can be very engaged to follow up with the Addis Ababa Accord to restore peace in the region. Part of your job is to help women who have been rape victims, and part of it is to also seek justice. How successful have you been? In our country, we must pay before the case goes to the court. If we don't pay, they cannot accept to take the case and to continue to facilitate access to justice for women. So, yes, we see some change, but we saw that it's not enough because some officials, the high commander, they are not finished. We like to see more engagement, government engagement. We need to see more because till now women cannot get reparation. And we continue to follow up, we continue to push, but it's very tough. And uh, another thing we saw that donors don't give money to women group. How dangerous is this job? Ah, it's very dangerous because uh, many times we are attacked by militia. Myself, I'm attacked by militia and I have to leave many town and every time my family is uh, in a bad situation that is not easy to speak about. And my colleague, one of my colleagues cut by militia, they attack her and they, they do everything bad. And uh, we thank God because he continued to protect us. And we thank other foundation, as Oak Foundation, who give us support to have um, psychological support and uh, have medical support. But it's not easy. But we know that if we, we leave, we, we don't do that, our daughter cannot have right and access to justice in the future. That was Julian Lusenge, a member of the Women's Platform for Peace in the Democratic Republic of Congo, speaking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa, P.O. Box 91313, Oakland Park, Johannesburg, you can also send us SMS to plus 
Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's mission in the Middle East to woo trade and foreign direct investment into South Africa moved to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates yesterday. On Sunday, the President met with Saudi King Salman bin Abdul Aziz President Zuma met the Prime Minister of the UAE and the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed bin al-Rashid Maktoum, for talks to upscale bilateral trade and investment. Our presidential correspondent, Ndebo Mokobo, has more. President Jacob Zuma was on a trade and investment mission in the Middle East from Saudi Arabia, where he was given the first order, the highest award the king bestows on a foreign national. President Zuma flew to Dubai, the jewel of the United Arab Emirates. This is one of the fastest developing countries in the world with the best infrastructure. The country also boasts the tallest building on earth. Perhaps these are some of the reasons that South Africa has identified as a key partner to do business. President Zuma explains. I was impressed when I first learned of the UAE rail infrastructure, which, with time, it is believed may connect the Gulf Cooperation Council nations. I believe South Africa can learn a lot from that project since we have been tasked to drive the North-South Corridor and the other road and rail infrastructure projects in the continent of Africa. Dubai is preparing to host the World Expo 2020. We feel that South African companies should take advantage of this development to ensure that World Expo 2020 becomes the best in history. Already there is a high business activity between the two countries. Currently there are a number of flights between the United Arab Emirates and South Africa's three cities, Johannesburg, Cape Town and Durban. Again, South Africa has a large population residing in Dubai with many involved in the construction industry, IT services, the retail sector and hospitality industry. United Arab Emirates Minister of Energy Suhail Mohammed Faraj Al-Mazrui says there is a lot they can share with South Africa. For us, I think here in the United Arab Emirates, we have also things, Your Excellency, that we could share. The fastest peaceful nuclear program ever existed in the world. From inception to having the first plan, it's around 10 years. No one have done it that fast. And I think those are areas of diversification of energy resources that we have excelled in in the United Arab Emirates and we can also uh, share some of those learnings. The uh, diversification of the economy itself is also an area of, uh, of learnings for, for many and we would like also to offer those, Your Excellency, learnings that we could contribute to. UAE business people also raise their concern about the protection of their investment in the country but Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis says there is no need to panic. We have passed a protection of investment law. It's now signed into law. It is in force. It provides guarantees against expropriation. There's a clause in the Constitution which uh, is actually uh, not easy to change. What we don't have in any other law, which is provided for in bilateral treaties, but which is now contained in our law, is national treatment. So foreign investors that come into South Africa are given national treatment in like circumstances. That's what it says there in our law. 
The third thing is it provides for physical security. We all provide physical security to, to, to foreign investors. It provides for the repatriation of profits. It provides also for uh, a number of ways of settling any disputes. In the first instance, we offer through our department an easy facilitation process. Both countries are happy at a steady growth in trade and investment between the two nations. They've recorded an increase of 14 billion rent in the last five years. After meeting business people from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, President Zuma says they're all keen to invest in the country. Very keen to come in and invest. They've got the resources to invest and, and they made it very clear to us that they are keen to come. They will be moving immediately. They are very eager on that very specific area of renewable. And I think there is a lot that uh, they would do, and we welcome that because they've got things that we need from people who are doing the renewable energy. As the South African delegation wraps its working visit to the Middle East, President Zuma remains optimistic that they've put a case in attracting trade and investment, insisting that the success will be measured by a number of foreign direct investment into the country. I am Tebumo Kobo, Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. The United Nations Security Council has again failed to agree on a statement that officially articulates its position regarding a spat between Morocco and the UN Secretary General over Western Sahara. This after Morocco expelled dozens of UN civilian personnel attached to the UN mission for the referendum in Western Sahara after taking issue with the Secretary General's use of the word occupation to describe Morocco's annexation of the territory. Morocco's foreign minister said the decision to reduce staff at the mission was sovereign and irreversible, while his government remained committed to military cooperation with the UN to guarantee the ceasefire with the Polisario Front. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Despite appeals for the Security Council to send a firm message to Morocco, these were among the lukewarm elements to the press revealed by President of the Council, Angola's Ambassador Ishmael Gaspar Martins. The members of the Security Council stressed the importance of addressing in a constructive, comprehensive and cooperative manner the circumstances that led to the current situation so that MINURSO may resume its full capacity to carry out its mandate as contained in several Security Council resolutions. But Secretariat officials have warned Morocco's unilateral actions could set a bad precedent for other missions around the world. Listen to my exchange with the Secretary-General's Deputy Spokesperson, Farhan Haq. Does the Secretary-General believe that the UN Security Council's lack of support is undermining his authority and the institution that he represents? Uh, I'd, I'd formulated the other way around, that what the Secretary General believes is that the Council works best and is f by far at its most effective when it is united and when it is capable of expressing its united stance. That's why it's important, for example, on resolutions which the Security Council has passed, that the Security Council is able to take action to make sure that its will in those resolutions is respected and respected by all parties. Does the Secretary General today believe that Morocco is occupying parts of Western Sahara? Ultimately, this is the question of the status is a complex question. We want it to be resolved in a way that's agreeable to all parties. 
the Secretary General said what he said. We explained why he said what he said, and he continues to stand by that. But we want this to be resolved in a way that ultimately comes out in the interests of all parties. We're not trying to take any side over any other side. What we're trying to do is get to a situation where this, the, the status of Western Sahara will be resolved. The Polisario Front's UN envoy, Ahmed Bukhari, has warned that inaction from the council could be dangerous as it had implications for the power of the Security Council to keep control of the missions it mandates. We would like the Security Council to take position from the day one because uh, the more time is taken for this, uh, uh, the danger would grow up. And it will be good for the Security Council to deal with this issue now than to deal with uh, an open war. And uh, I hope that uh, some, uh, some, some uh, I mean, uh, degree of seriousness needs to be injected in the dynamics now. The UN Secretariat believes that the reduction of staff at the mission will prevent it from fulfilling its mandate and lead to a security vacuum in the region. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. After years of living in fear of standing up for their rights, Libyan women are now emerging to claim better political representation. That's the understanding of Mahda al-Sanusi, gender advisor at the United Nations Support Mission in Libya. Sanusi was at the UN headquarters at a panel where Libyan women spoke about their experiences in the transition and the role of women in political life. Conflict in the North African country has been ongoing since 2011, but in January 2016, a new proposed government was announced, the Government of National Accord, which is backed by the United Nations. The warring factions have yet to agree on its makeup. Carmen Cuesta Roca has been speaking with Magda El Sanusi about the newfound empowerment of women in Libya. They are on the rise in a sense of they continue their struggle, they are restless, they are seeking for peace, they are accompanying all the processes that are happening in, in their country. And has political participation among women increased or decreased in, in recent years in the country? I often uh, challenge the, the people like how, how best we define the political participation in terms of uprise of women coming up to be part of the, the processes and for seeking peace, I think there is a huge amount or a large number of women who are calling upon peace, uh, peace attainment. If we are talking about the representation of women in the formal structure, and I think they are trying their post, they are pushing for their representation uh, to the best that will fulfill their aspiration. But they are there in the political space. What kind of proportion of women are there? I think that uh, in the current government of National Accord, there are three ladies out of uh, 18 members. So it's, it's, it's a progress somehow. I think they did a very significant uh, progress and achievement in the political Libyan political agreement, whereby they have included the establishment of women's empowerment as support unit to be part of the presidential council, which is, is very good because it will increase women's profile and representation in, in the public life. And what kind of impact does, you know, in this transition period with the absence of law and order, what kind of impact does that absence have on, on women progressing in political life, cultural life, social life? 
Of course, definitely not only in Libya and everywhere. Uh, if there is insecurity, women lose out because uh, there are the, the, maybe the majority, their mobility become a little bit uh, restricted to participate in the public life. There is a fear that uh, influence is the shrinking of their space uh, to be fully engaged in whatever they wish. Like, nevertheless, what, what I use always uh, to say... Uh, the hard time um, uh, that Libya had or still having has really created a new, a, new, a new Libyan women who are standing up and not feeling scared or to hide. So they struggle and continue and take all the challenge to, to have that space and be there. I want to know what, what do you think the effect the UN presence in the country has had on empowering women and improving the situation um, or not, uh, if the case may be? Definitely. The, 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 the Libyan women, uh, of, of course, um, um, UN came at a time after the, the revolution. That means building a new era for Libyan women. Libyan women need now to, they, have, they haven't had a good, uh, a strong history and civil society organization and women's groups that can stand up and advocate and demand women rights. So there has been a kind of transformation where women made use of uh, the democratic transition in terms of stepping in, now how to fight, how to. So I think the UN has been, especially UNSMIR, has been accompanying women along all those processes. For example, in the various election advocacy, supporting the candidates, pushing for women's representation, having a quota, and I think to a large extent our voice, which often I have to admit backed up the voice of Libyan women because of that demand UN uh, support. So we consider ourselves as part of the whole uh, movement and women's coming together that has, which we have started to see uh, after three or four years. And that was Carmen Cuesta Roca speaking to Magda El Sanusi about the newfound empowerment of women in Libya. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. In the headline, 17 youth activists in Angola sentenced to prison terms of between two and eight years for planning a rebellion against President José Eduardo dos Santos. The Sudanese government have signed an action plan with the United Nations to prevent the recruitment and use of children by its security forces. And UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has condemned a suicide bombing on a park in Pakistan which killed more than 70 people and wounded over 300. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. The International Monetary Fund's mission chief for West African country, Montfort Mlachila, says diversifying Gabon's economy will make it more resilient in the face of plunging oil prices. The economy remains heavily dependent on oil and due to the drop in oil prices, like most producers around the world, Gabon's revenues are falling dramatically along with exports. The overall growth rate remained at 4% last year, but is expected to shrink to just over 3%. Lachila explains how the economy could recover in 2016. Their key strategic objective over the long run is to diversify the economy, uh, make the economy more resilient. 
in the short run, uh, the government obviously needs to live within its, its means by uh, doing two things. One, trying to uh, raise additional revenue uh, outside of the oil sector, notably, for example, by uh, reducing uh, the extent of tax exemptions. And then on the spending side, uh, the government can take a number of measures, for, for instance, to control better the, the growth of the wage bill and at the same time reprioritize uh, capital spending uh, to focus on projects that have the highest economic returns uh, so that uh, it can uh, uh, live within its means. But if the government reduces spending, won't it hurt the poorest segments of society? Indeed, I mean, the, the government is, is fully aware of these challenges. The issue is uh, to adjust uh, spending in line with, with what is available in terms of revenue. So the government can actually potentially raise additional revenue from the rest of uh, the non-oil sector. Uh, on the other hand, the government can strengthen its social safety net by doing a number of things. For instance, for people in the rural areas, it can develop further the agricultural sector, which is an area which Gabon can, can do a lot more because Gabon still imports a lot of, of food. This can be done by, for instance, improving rural access roads or uh, improving the availability of, of inputs in the agricultural sector. At the same time, especially in the, in the urban areas, the government can improve its social safety net mm. by introducing or expanding cash transfers for, for the most vulnerable segments of the population. You talked about the need for Gabon to be less dependent on oil. Mm-hmm. How do you see Gabon diversifying its economy? What the government has been doing is it has put in place a strategic plan, Plan Stratégique Gabon Emergent, whose uh, focus is on a, a number of areas. First and foremost, uh, development of uh, infrastructure, especially in the area of, uh, of transport infrastructure such as roads, ports and, uh, and railways, and, and at the same time also uh, improving availability of electricity, for instance. The other area which the government is trying to, to develop is to improve the amount of value added in the economy uh, by, uh, for example, creating a special economic zone. Uh, there's a special economic zone in Cordon Coq near Libreville, whose main function is uh, to develop uh, various industries, notably in the wood processing industry, where there can be additional value added. Finally, in the area of, uh, of education, for instance, the government uh, is fully aware that the, there's a shortage of uh, qualified manpower in, in various uh, economic activities. So by spending more effort in uh, training, especially in vocational training, there's a possibility or there's potential to ameliorate the performance of the economy and improve the diversification potential for Gabon. That was Professor. Rather, that was International Monetary Fund's mission chief for the West African country, Monfort Mlachila, speaking to UN Radio's Ismailia Deng. Channel Africa is turning 50 this year. And to celebrate this milestone, Channel Africa invites you, our listeners, to send us anniversary messages. It's simple. Just call us on this number, plus 2783-913-3000, and follow the prompts to leave a short message. We would love to hear from you, and we are looking forward to hear your well wishes. Channel Africa, 
the voice of the African Renaissance. Five prominent scientists, including one from South Africa, have received a special UNESCO Women in Science Award at a ceremony in Paris on Thursday. Professor Kwaresha Abdul-Karim from South Africa's coastal city of Durban is being recognized for her groundbreaking work tackling HIV across Africa. Widely respected, she is a member of the Academy of Science of South Africa and the African Academy of Sciences a clinical trial led by her in 2007 was the first to show that a topical gel could reduce a person's risk of contracting HIV. Our UK correspondent Dan Whitehead caught up with Professor Kwaresha and asked her about her work. To date, uh, 92 eminent scientists have been recipients of this award um, across the five regions of the world. And so I was really, really uh, thrilled, honored, and an absolute privilege to learn that I'm, uh, I'm joining the ranks of these eminent scientists. Professor Gratia was chosen for what judges described as her remarkable contribution to the prevention and treatment of HIV, improving lives of women across Africa. The four other winners at the L'Oreal UNESCO Women in Science Awards were from France, the US, China and Argentina. They were nominated by 2,600 scientists from around the world. The awards not only celebrate the valuable contributions the winners have made, it's hoped it will also encourage more women to become involved in science. Speaking to the SABC, one of the judges, Apollinaire de King, said it is vital to get more women to become leaders in the field of science. Encouraging women to actually be interested in, 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 in taking science as a career and also within institutions, ensuring that women and men are given equal chances. Each new laureate receives prize money of 100,000 euro, around 1.7 million rand. Professor Kuresha explained what she'll be spending the money on. 20% of the money to set up a fund together with an international organization that recognizes women's science leadership in developing countries. And the rest of the money will be used towards research. We never ever have enough money for all the work that needs to be done. All winners hope that the awards will continue to drive more women into... That was Professor Koresha Abdul-Karim speaking to Dan Whitehead. Zimbabwean artists have pledged to join the war against poaching in the country. Organizers of the Harare International Festival of the Arts Haifa, an arts stage that attracts renowned artists from across the world, said during the unveiling of a new arts program for 2016, poaching is now rampant in Zimbabwe, leading to cyanide poisoning of hundreds of elephants in the country's sanctuaries. More from our correspondent Simon Machema in Harare. Poaching could be a thing of the past in the near future in Zimbabwe following revelations by an art and culture body, Haifa, that artists would be now joining hands in the fight against the killing of animals. 
Acts of poaching mainly of lions and elephants is on the increase in Zimbabwe in what experts say is a new mafia-style killing of wildlife animals. As a result, the country has lost large numbers of elephants and lions due to increased poaching. New laws have been enacted and measures to curb increased poaching have been put in place, but according to the Harare International Festival of the Arts, Artists who benefit from wildlife conservations should also play their part. Artists who come to Zimbabwe every year for Haifa are also treated as tourists, hence the importance of proper wildlife care. According to Haifa, media manager Tafadzwa Simba, in December this year, artists would work with foreign conservationists from South Africa in a bid to raise awareness. In December... I think if you look at our HIFA program, you will see that we've done a lot of work with regards to looking after the environment. This has mainly been under the uh, umbrella of our urban regeneration, and we've worked with several um, environmental organizations with regard to uh, recycling, beautifying the city, making sure that you know, our site is responsible in terms of disposal of refuse and so forth. And so we've played our part in terms of environmental awareness. But we're going to take that, pardon the pun, to the next level. <laughs> and so we're going to have a, a, a conference on um, environmental awareness and also the, the, the scourge of poaching. Each year, hundreds of artists from across the world throng Zimbabwe capital Harare, showcasing their talent and skills during the annual six-day finale. However, this year, due to funding challenges, the annual event has been spread to an event a month, but December has been set aside for anti-poaching awareness. Tafaz Wasimba explained how wildlife conservancy is important for the country. Tafaza said during the week as Haifa unveiled this year's program of events. And so we're going to have a, a, a conference on um, environmental awareness and also the, the, the scourge of poaching. There is this link between our unique resources, Zimbabwe, which is uh, our wildlife. The link between our wildlife and, and tourism. And tourism is obviously an integral part of the sustainability of the creative industry. So what's good for the environment is good for tourism, is good for the um, uh, creative industry. Because this is where now we are able to market ourselves as, as artists in Zimbabwe. When, the, when, when folks come from outside, come in and see the work that we do. So... Again, as part of our environmental responsibility, we're going to be talking about this. Now, this year is also a big year in that um, there's the CITES conference that is happening in South Africa this year. That's going to be focusing on, you know, putting animals in, in indices, you know, um, with regard to do we allow the trade of, of, of this particular byproduct and so forth. Tafazwa Simba added the new Haifa approach is not a sign the arts and culture annual event is broke, but went further to appeal for funding towards empowering young artists. But there's a danger that audiences will so like what we're doing, and they'll say, this is what they should do all the time. So that's a bit of my, of my 
um, fear. So, in a word, yes, we are safe, but we can never have enough. Mm. Um, I don't care where the, the, the event is happening, you can never have enough. Please, if you've got money, please feel free to contribute to us. We'll give you our, our bank accounts. But seriously, if you, if you know these organizations that are willing and wanting to assist, please do. Even pointing, pointing them out to particular artists to say that artist can get the funding and, and be part of Haifa. But what I must also say is that uh, we are, again, also working um, towards Haifa 17, uh, 2017. So um, all of that is on course as well. And, of course, that is where a lot of our attention will, will come, will go, um, and obviously the, the, the bulk of the resources. Currently, poaching in Zimbabwe is on the increase such that more than 300 elephants were poisoned in Wange between 2013 and 2014. More elephants were lost in 2015 due to cyanide poisoning, again resulting in Haifa coming up with the new anti-poaching awareness campaign. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.45 and we say good morning to Tabi Soluhoko with our economics update. Tanzania has discovered what could be the country's biggest onshore gas. The discovery was found by the Dubai-based Dotsil Group, which plans to invest in uh, an additional, rather, 300 million U.S. dollars in the country. The discovery in the Ruvu Basin near Dar es Salaam is estimated to contain 2.7 trillion cubic feet of natural gas deposits. The South African government has promised to protect the investment of foreign companies in the country. This comes out during... The SAUAE business meeting that took place in Dubai over the Easter weekend. Most UAE companies are reluctant to invest in South Africa, fearing their investments are not protected. But speaking to dozens of business people in Dubai, South Africa's trade and industry minister Rob Davies said there was no need to panic. We have passed a protection of investment law. It is in force. It provides guarantees against expropriation. There's a clause in the Constitution which uh, is not easy to change. What we don't have in any other law, which is provided for in bilateral treaties but was now contained in our law, is national treatment. So foreign investors that come into South Africa are given national treatment in like circumstances. That's what it says there in our law. The third thing is it provides for physical security. We will provide physical security to, to, to foreign investors. It provides for the repatriation of profits. 
The United Arab Emirates Minister of Energy, Mohammed Al-Mazuri, says countries must remain focused in their projects. For us in the United Arab Emirates, we would like to be focused. And I think if we can identify one or two or three areas which interest you, but at the same time they are a priority for the government and focus on those, then we could, uh, we could deliver, uh, deliver some progress. Rwandan cement producers have to embrace innovative approaches and technology to ensure their products are more accessible and affordable. According to experts, a proper coordination among producers and sustainable infrastructure development in the region will boost cement and production and the construction sector in general. Experts add that innovative approaches are essential for local producers to be competitive on the regional and international cement markets. The Egyptian pound has fallen to an unprecedented low on the black market. Egypt, which relies heavily on imports, has faced a shortage of foreign currency since the popular uprising in 2011. A black market for U.S. dollars has sucked up liquidity from the banking system and put a strain on the country's foreign reserves. The U.S. dollar, 15.46 in South Africa, 11.03 in Botswana. 11.25 in Zambia, 7.0 British pound, 8.9 euro, a gold $1,218, platinum $944 an ounce, brand crude $40, 5 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our sports update up next with Tammy Guza. In our sport, thanks for joining us. This Tuesday night in faraway Alexandria in Egypt, two African giants the Super Eagles of Nigeria and the Pharaohs of Egypt will clash at the Borg El Arab Stadium as they aim to qualify for the 2017 Afghan finals in Gabon. Egypt struggled to a one-all draw in Kaduna on Friday, with Nigeria enjoying the majority of possession. And this Tuesday's clash will trigger plenty of emotions in Egypt, and an already intense and crucial match in Alexandria will definitely be affected by such a charged atmosphere. A win for Egypt would all but seal their qualification to the tournament finals in Gabon next and would signal the end of Eagles' hope of progressing. Charts withdrawal from Group G means that the second-place team will not qualify under any circumstances whatsoever. Should Nigeria pull off a win, however, they will be the favorite to finish at the top of the standings and will go into the final match day with a one-point lead over Egypt, with Tanzania visiting the former team at home in September. Back home, 
South Africa's under-23 men's national team put up a gallant fight but lost 3-1 to host Brazil in a fast-paced international match at the Marseille in Brazil on Sunday night. This was part of Owen Stegama's preparations for the upcoming Rio 2016 Olympics, which will be held in Brazil's cultural center later this year. And in athletics, Kenya's Jeffrey Kamororo survived a stampede when he fell at the start of the Easter Saturday's World Tough Marathon Championships that was in Cardiff in England. And despite the incident, Kamororo won the world title for the second time in a row after Copenhagen in Denmark in 2014. Kesho has more. Jeffrey Kamororo accidentally fell on the ground when the starter fired the gun. He was lucky not to be run over by a group of runners. He picked himself up with bruised knees and took no time to catch the front runners before the first 5-kilometer mark. Gamroro lifted the pace in the last 2 kilometers to win the race in 59 minutes, 10 seconds, 26 seconds ahead of teammate Baden Muchiri, who was the chief pace setter before 15 kilometers onwards. The British favorite, Mo Farah, a double Olympic and world champion over 5,000 and 10,000 meters, won a sprint finish against Abayene Ayele of Ethiopia to finish third in just under 60 minutes. Kenya had a field day in the women's race comprised of a new breed of runners. 22-year-old Pavis Jebcheche crossed the line first in 1 hour, 7 minutes 31 seconds, leading Cynthia Limo and Mary Ngugi to a clean sweep of the podium places. Geshom Yati, Channel for Sports, London. In golf, South Africa's Louis Osthuizen has jumped to seven spots to number 11 in the official world golf rankings. Osthuizen lost 5-4 and four to Australia's Jason Day in the title match of the World Match Play Tournament in Texas on Sunday. For his efforts, Osthuizen rose to na- from number 18 to number 11 in the rankings with compatriot Brendan Grace moving down one spot to number 13. Jason Day, meanwhile, regained the world number one spot following his victory. And finally, in tennis, Novak Djokovic moved to the last 16 with a 6-4-6-1 victory over 33-seed Jao Sousa of Portugal and will next play against one of the most impressive young stars, uh, Dominic Thiem of Austria at the Miami Open. Here's Novak Djokovic on facing Dominic Thiem next. He has had um, definitely the best year and a half of his, of his life and the results are showing that. You know, this year he's, he's one of the best players in the world in terms of results. He beat Nadal and Clay. he had some great wins, he has title. Yeah, he's definitely one of, one of the, uh, the, the, the players that is the next generation that we should all look out for and uh, I'm sure he's going to be very motivated to perform his best, to showcase all that he's got in his arsenal, but I'll, I'll make sure I'm ready for it. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Burundi's ruling party criticizes the Roman Catholic Church and the Great Lakes women demand a more active role in peace talks. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magadza and Elizabeth Ledicha, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Johnny Clegg with a song titled Waza Friday.